12 folks, Jerry Adams, Aracharish, Augustus Hulagomsa, Gowil Shibsha, Gomoy, Augustus Gwintanafasan, Amshar Galanta, Amshar Grenwer. You know, summer when it comes is a great time for catching up on books which have been sitting waiting to be opened. And Inglorious Empire by Shaishi Taror is one such. And it's particularly relevant as the current crisis in Afghanistan unfolds amid the chaotic and shambolic disengagement of the British and the USA from a country that they never have invaded. It's a story of empire, of colonialism, and of its legacy as told through the history of India. It's a scathing indictment of the British rule in that region, an India which up to 1947 included Bangladesh and Pakistan. That year, Britain, as in Ireland just three decades earlier, imposed an arbitrary partition of the subcontinent. Between one and two million people died in the conflict that follows, and many millions more were uprooted from their homes. Inglorious Empire is a detailed and devastating critique of British policy in India and of its impact on the people who live there. It's a lengthy, well-written, at times moving account of the robbery, of the livelihood of the native people by an immoral imperialistic regime. Thoreau begins his examination of the impact of Britain's imperial policies in India with a quote from a young American historian, Will Durant, who visited the country in 1930. He summed up in one short paragraph the Indian experience. The British conquest of India was an invasion and the destruction of a high civilization by a trading company, the British East India Company, Utterly without scruple or principle, careless of art and greedy of gain, overrunning with fire and sword a country temporarily disordered and helpless, bribing and murdering, annexing and stealing, and beginning that career of illegal and legal, inverted commas, plunder, which has now, and this is in 1930, gone on ruthlessly for 173 years. At the beginning of the 18th century, the economy of India was as large as that of the European states put together, all of the European states put together at that time. India held a 23% share of the world economy. When the British left in 1947, that had been reduced to just over 3%. The reason was simple, this book tells us. India was governed for the benefit of Britain. Britain's rise for 200 years was financed by its depredations in India. And measures not unlike those employed to undermine Irish commerce in the 18th century, Indian industry, trade, shipping and shipbuilding were effectively destroyed. Before the British came to India, it had a thriving trade and shipbuilding industry. 
In the early 17th century, the Bengal flute fleet alone included between four and 5,000 ships, between 400 and 500 tons each. <coughs> Gumbel To weaken the competition, the British ship owners were given a monopoly on trade routes. Taxes were imposed on Indian ships, forcing many of them out of business. During the Napoleonic Wars, many British ships were sunk. The British government was forced to employ foreign vessels. Indian shipping was commandeered, and British and Indian sailors were reclassified as British sailors, allowing them access to British trade routes. When the war was ended, the law was amended again to exclude Indian shipping, and the industry collapsed. At the outset of the First World War, the British government promised to implement self-rule or dominion status for India in return for its support during the war. The number of Indian soldiers involved in that conflict is staggering. Over 1,200,000 Indian soldiers fought in the different theatres of war between 1914 and 1918. It's estimated that almost 75,000 were killed and tens of thousands were wounded. Similar commitments for Irish home rule were made by the British to Irish politicians who, like John Redmond, supported the British war effort. And as they portrayed Redmond, so the British portrayed India. Not only did it fail to provide for dominion status, it passed a repressive Rule Act in 1919, reimposing upon India all the wartime restrictions on freedom of speech and assembly, First, at the Viceroy's government with extraordinary powers to quell sedition and including in this repressive measures censorship of the press, internment, secret trials and no right to appeal. They suppressed protests ruthlessly. In April 1919, the people of Amritsar protested against the Roulette Act the British Brigadier General in Control, Reginald Dwyer, or Dyer, an Irishman, imposed restrictions on public movements. On April 9th, a religious festival took place in a popular enclosed garden with only five narrow passageways providing access. Several thousand people were attending, pilgrims, Dwyer took soldiers armed with machine guns and rifles and without warning opened fire on the peaceful crowds. At least 379 were killed, <coughs> with, according to Dwyer, or Dyer, barely a bullet wasted. He ordered his soldiers to give no aid to the wounded and imposed a 24-hour curfew, which prevented relatives or friends attending to the wounded lying in the streets. This was no act of insane frenzy. It was a conscious, deliberate imposition of colonial will. Like Bloody Sunday in our time, Amritsar emboldened Indian resistance to British rule and increased the demand for independence. Like Wedgery, the official commission of inquiry at that time largely whitewashed Dyer's conduct. This book is a powerful account of the evil of imperialism and colonialism. As we watch events unfold in Afghanistan, 
which has been a frequent victim in the past of Western imperialism, it's worth remembering that the policies being pursued today in many parts of the world by Western powers continue to have their roots in the racist, imperialistic legacy of empire and colonialism. A reminder of this in our own time is a, a wonderful book by Eilish Rooney, who very kindly sent us her Bella Murphy poems. Eilish is one of the stalwarts of our West Belfast and educational community sectors. An active citizen in every sense and a wonderful poet. This collection is dedicated to the families of the Bella Murphy massacre and to another community stalwart, Kieran Cahill. It's all about the Bella Murphy massacre. It's financed, self-financed by Eilish and all donations will go towards the Bella Murphy Massacre Memorial Garden. Part one of this book takes the reader into the heart of the Bella Murphy inquest, as well as the events in the Murph on August the 9th to the 11th, 1971. Part two consists of 11 poems, one for each of the victims. Elish's language is straightforward, restrained, and measured, but evocative and powerful, every word wed and commanding. It is a dignified testimony, as she intended, I am sure, a testimony to human resilience and courage. It's also an indictment of hypocrisy, brutality, double-dating, indifference and cruelty. While Elish no doubt is too modest to see the comparison, I believe her Bella Murphy poems is on par with Thomas Kinsella's Butcher's Dozen. It's also fitting that this collection of poems by a daughter of Bella Murphy is one of the responses to the injustice inflicted on our neighbours by a cowardly, brutal regime. Father Des would approve. I'm leaving you in this section of this podcast with Elish's opening verse. It's titled, Interment, and it begins with a quote from James V. Burke. Demetrius lives on in Ireland from the New York Times of March the 1st, 1983. Some long-forgotten military planner called it, that's internment, Operation Demetrius, in honour of the warrior king of Macedonia, who it was said conquered but never ruled. And here's Elish. And Lagonside Courthouse, Courtroom 12, military witnesses often refer to Operation Demetrius. Families facing them look and listen. They have waited a long time to see and hear the men in charge tell what happened that day and why. Who ordered the shooting? In their evidence, the long-forgotten military planner is called to mind and forgotten in one and the same breath. Much as the river is remembered at the courthouse, far from its ancient origins, Owen and Lagan, far as Bella Murphy is from Macedonia, where Demetrius made a name for himself. And finally, and on a later note, and by the way, before I come to this, Bella Murphy Poems is available from the Bella Murphy Massacre Committee, 6 to 7 Spring Hill Close, Belfast BT 12, 7SE 
or from an Ashog, the Green Cross shop on the Falls Road. Anyway, coming to my concluding remarks. When I was at primary school, my nickname was Addies. Now, it didn't last long beyond St Finian's for some reason. My brothers, or at least some of them, had the same moniker. I don't know about the girls, but years later I discovered Argoroids. Old school books had Addies scribbled on them. Different generation, same nickname. In our class in St Finian's, we had Spud Murphy, Guts Garland and other monikers. The surname Burns was usually changed to Burnsey. And in prison years later, nicknames were common. Cliquey, Floorboards, Hunky Tunks, The Dosser, Jack the D- Giant, Rigor Mortis, Shoulders, Ted the Red, Dickie Mints, and so on. The origin of some of these nicknames is amusing. For example, Floorboards' surname was Rafter. He was a great friend of mine. Rigor Mortis spent a lot of his time stretched out on his bunk. He also was a good friend. And I sometimes wonder where Swinger or Jack McBride or Goose or Cheezer's nicknames came from. This week I discovered a thread on Twitter on the subject of nicknames. It's at Rockopotamus82. It's also very amusing. Here are some funny examples. There's a lad called Chili, because his dad's name is Concarney. Another by the name of Mickey McBride is nicknamed Mickey No Bride, because his wife left him. An unfortunate chap called Shay Cox is nicknamed Six Mickeys. In Fermanagh, a money changer called Moss gets called Sterling Moss. End of May is nicknamed June. The son of a fellow named the Lord goes by the name of the baby Jesus. WD-40 got his nickname because his dad is called Rusty. A chap whose surname is Nedham gets called Needles. And finally, one of my favourites is a lad called Miss Ireland because he did a parachute and landed in the sea. And finally, finally, I normally try to keep my private life private. But let me make this small exception. Clet and I are married 50 years this week. 50 years. That's some achievement for both of us. Well done to Clet. Well done to me. Well done to the two of us. And we go out this week, La Don Everly, who died this week, and his wonderful Turn the Memories. Lose again. Keep your mind shut, shut. Slant Tamil, Amor Oro. I don't look like that picture, but I know that it's me. And I don't sound the same way I did then. But I can sing an old song made famous way back when. And I can turn the memories loose again I never thought of money They just told me it was there A brand new car for a brand new millionaire But fame can 
caught up in the wind And I can turn the memories loose again Dreams that disappeared can come alive today Success can be a freedom or a change I don't regret one moment All I did was sing And I can turn the memories loose again Dreams that disappeared Can't come alive today Yeah. Mm-hmm.